Welcome, everybody, to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, welcome. Appreciate you checking us out. My name is John. Hopefully, I met you on the way in, but we appreciate you guys coming on out on Super Bowl Sunday. But today, we are wrapping up this series that we've been calling The God's Honest Truth, where over the last five weeks, actually, that was, over the last five weeks, we have been taking a look at these moments in time and throughout time and even in our own lives, when Jesus sort of steps in to expose us to what we've been calling the God's honest truth. And the God's honest truth is simply these truths about God or the world or even about ourselves. And, and these can be truths that could be brand new to our ears. And when we hear them, it's just everything is different. Everything has changed. The way that we see the world, it's just it's amazing. These could be truths that perhaps we were taught as children and subsequently we have forgotten them or they've fallen by the wayside or maybe we just ignored them. Or they could be truths, particularly when they're about ourselves, they could be truths that we just don't want to believe are true. And we just say to say to Jesus, mm, you're wrong on that one. It's these la this last category that I want to focus on today when Jesus kind of shines the light into our own life, because we're going to be seeing an amazing story today. I mean, they're all good. I just got to say that. This one's particularly good. And in this particular story, Jesus shines his light, shines the God's honest truth onto sin. It's a particular sin in this story, but it's, it's sin in general. And the God's honest truth is really going to challenge us in a number of ways. It'll, it'll challenge the way that we see sin in other people, uh, I think it will challenge the way that we think God sees us. At least hopefully it will challenge that. And it will challenge the way that we react to sin in our own lives. So today is a very famous story. If you've been in church any length of time, you've heard this story. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard this story a lot of times. And you are going to be tempted to sort of rush to the end because you know the punchline. You know how it ends. You know how great this is. I'm just going to challenge you to kind of throw out the sea anchor, slow yourself down a little bit, and try to experience this story as though you're hearing it for the very first time. Before we get into it, let me sort of set the stage for today, set the scene as to where this story takes place. Because understanding the context of where this story takes place adds a level of drama to this very, very famous story. So today, this encounter will happen in the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Here's a picture of what it looks like today. So the temple that Jesus would have been in 2,000 years ago, that's been destroyed. Got destroyed many, long, many years ago. It's been destroyed. It is now has been conquered by the Muslims. So they are in control of this property. But this is effectively the, the footprint of the original temple. Now, here in the middle of this building with the dome on top, that is a Muslim landmark that is known as the Dome of the Rock. But under this, 2,000 years ago, this is where the sort of inner sanctum, if you will, of the temple was located. This is where the Holy of Holies was. That's what it was called. And inside the Holy of Holies was the actual presence of God on this world. Now, around the Holy of Holies, this sort of area here, there are some buildings that are gone, but this general area is known as the Court of Gentiles or the Center Court. And in here was sort of where folks came to hang out. 
Okay, Jewish people would be in there. Gentiles would be in there. There were trees, there were benches, there was coffee. This is sort of where you just did business throughout the day. So there'd be a lot of people in here. This is where the story takes place today, right? In the center court, in the court of Gentiles. Now, down here, this is the southern wall. Let me zoom in real quick on this area. Okay, these are the southern stairs or the southern steps. And these are the stairs that Jewish people would have walked up and they would have gone through these three gates known as the triple gate, okay? And they would have walked through these gates into the court of Gentiles. These stairs would have been sort of the, the stairway to heaven, if you will, because multiple times a year, every year, Jewish people would take their sacrifice, they would walk up these steps, they would walk through the triple gates, they would walk onto the court of Gentiles, and they would find the priest. And they would give them the priest their sacrifice. The priest would dispatch it, whatever it is, you know, a, a lamb or a, or a pigeon if they were poor and couldn't afford a lamb. And then they would leave. They would walk out these gates, they would walk down these steps, and they would be free of sin, of guilt, and their relationship with God would have been restored. See, the temple is different than a church. It's much more than just a church building. The temple was where God's presence was. And this is where our story takes place today. So we're going to be in John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 2. So we read that it is early in the morning. So it could be like 6.30 in the morning early. Early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. So the sun is not even up yet, it's still dark. And Jesus made his way up those Southern steps and he walked through the triple gate and then he sat down in the court of Gentiles. And even though it was early, there were crowds just around them. Because one of the things that we know when you read the gospels is that wherever Jesus went, people followed him. People wanted to be around him. And when you look at the demographics of the people that surrounded Jesus, what you'll see is that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And he liked them back. So he's there and he's teaching. And we read that the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the um, religious leaders at the time, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, now, remember, it's early in the morning, and these Jewish leaders, they, they bring in this woman that they had caught in adultery. And, and so you're, maybe you're wondering, like, well, what did they do with her all night? <laughs> I mean, they, they obviously found her at nighttime. What have they been doing her, with her this whole time? Well, I'll tell you. They've had her on ice. They've had this woman in their back pocket just waiting for Jesus. Because while these people may be religious leaders, they have no interest at all in bringing restoration into this woman's life. Now, this woman is nothing but bait for them to catch Jesus. And so they take this poor woman and they drag her up the southern steps and they drag her past all the Jewish people holding their sacrifices. They drag her through the triple gate. They drag her into the court of Gentiles and they throw her before Jesus. And they say to him, teacher, and they're being sarcastic, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery 
in the very act, okay? I don't know how that happened, right? But when they're talking about adultery, right, what they're like referring to is like, thou shalt not commit adultery, that one, that kind of adultery. This woman has broken one of the 10 commandments, right? And it's quite frankly, one of the few you remember, right? It's don't steal, you know, you know, don't kill and don't commit adultery. So this is like a top three. We got a good one on our hands, all right? This is a juicy one we can really sink our teeth into. And now she's on the ground and this crowd is growing because it's a spectacle, it's a whole thing. And people have their cell phones out and they're videotaping it. Somebody's live tweeting it. Somebody's yelling fake news, all that kind of stuff. It's a whole thing. Now, think about it from her perspective for just a second. This is a woman, a Jewish woman, who has been coming to this temple all of her life. But in the past, she has brought a sacrifice for her sins. This time, she is the sacrifice. And she's on this ground, and she's shaking, and she's crying, and she's scared to death. And in the distance, she can see the holy of holies and the magnitude of her sin begins to set in. And so this religious leader, they look at Jesus and they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded to stone such woman. What then do you say? We got to say all about that, Jesus. All right, so technically, let me say that they are correct in, in what they're, they're saying. The law does say that we are to stone someone caught in adultery, but they're leaving something out and so I pulled up the law so that you could see it with your own eyes. They are referring to Leviticus chapter 20, verses 10. Everybody's famous verse. You know, we love this one. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman have committed adultery, must be put to death. My question is, where's the man? Right, he's not there, okay? Because they don't really care. They let him go. This whole thing is a charade, all right? It's a farce. This is one big ruse that they have created, that they have concocted to catch Jesus. And John, who's the author of this gospel, even points it out. He goes, they're saying this, testing him. Just want to catch him. So that they may have some grounds for accusing him. Now, this is just par for the course for the Jewish leaders at this time. They are always always trying to trap Jesus. And they never do. I mean, it never works, mainly because their attempts are super lame. Um, but I will say this, this trap, this one's brilliant. I mean, I mean, this one is a work of art. And whoever came up with this one, they need a raise. Like, this is the guy you want on your side. Let me, let me walk you through this trap real quick. So this trap consists of two parts, and the two parts work with each other. And the first part is the law of Moses. Now, scripture's clear. You read it with your own eyes. Scripture's clear that this woman, and the man, but this woman must be stoned. That's what the law calls for. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, if Jesus does what they think he's going to do, right? If they believe, you know, if he goes soft on this woman, right? Gives it the old, let's turn the other cheek. Let's show her a little bit of mercy. Let's not, you know what? Let's not stone her today. Let's not do. If he does that, and they're expecting him to, but if he does that, then he's going against the law of Moses. And these religious leaders can point to the entire crowd and go, this man is not fit to be a rabbi. He is ignoring the law in the very temple of God. 
But if Jesus surprises them, kind of does something they didn't expect, and all of a sudden he goes, you know what? Uh, you're right. We got to stone this woman. Who's got a rock? Give me a sharp one. All right, we're going to take this woman out. If he does that, then boom, they nail him with the law of Rome. Because at this point, Jerusalem is under Roman occupation. And according to Roman law, only Rome had the sole authority to execute someone. And so if Jesus says, no, we need to execute this woman, they can have him arrested for rebelling against the Roman government. This is a real catch-22. I mean, I mean, it really is. And in this moment, you've got Jesus versus Moses. You've got Jesus versus the law, Jesus versus the temple, Jesus versus Rome. I mean, th- it is difficult to imagine the drama of this situation. It's difficult for us to appreciate the tension of this moment, the anger that exists. It's one of those situations where the disciples who were like basically always afraid, okay, they're kind of looking at this and now they're backing up. They're going, John, you writing notes all this down? Can you just send us the notes? Because we got to go. It's like a thing we got to get to. Dry cleaning's ready. All right? So, so how does Jesus handle this? What does he do? How is he going to disarm, so to speak, this bomb that these men have just placed in his lap? Well, calmly, very calmly, might I add. It says that Jesus got down. He kneeled. And he began to write in the dust with his finger. Now, picture this. Okay? I sound like Sophia Petrillo from the Golden Girls. Picture this, right? Sicily, 1920. But picture this for a moment. In front of this huge crowd, in front of his accusers who were just foaming at the mouth in this moment. He kneels. He takes a posture of humility before man, and he begins to write just silently in the dust. For the last 2,000 years, theologians have been debating what the heck he was writing, because we really don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But the consensus is that Jesus, by writing in the dust, was inviting us to remember that it was God who wrote with his own fingers the Ten Commandments. And in this moment, he is reminding these men about the true nature of the law, the law that they are holding this woman accountable to, the law that says that the entire world is guilty of sin before God. And the longer he writes the more fired up they get. And says, but when they persisted in asking, right? This is basically a fight now. These men have venom coursing through their system and they're persisting and they're goading. Speak up, answer for yourself. What do you got to say now, hotshot? What do you think you're supposed to do? And the longer Jesus stayed silent, the more confident they had him. But finally, he straightens up. Finally, he straightens up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Let any one of you guys that has no sin in your life, you be the first one to pick up that stone and kill this woman. 
And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. You see, Jesus in that moment shines the God's honest truth into their lives. And he says, men, before you go any further, before you throw anything, before you say anything, before you do anything, before you move a muscle, remember where we are right now. And remember why people come here. And don't forget how many times you and you and you walked up those stairs, through those gates, holding your sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And these men had made a colossal error. Because in this moment, they remembered all the times that they had walked up those steps. They remembered seeing their own parents walk up those stairs. Even their grandparents, they remember walking up those steps. And in that moment, they remembered all of their personal failures and all of their sins. Now, the ironic part of all this is that among them, there was someone who was without sin. And yet he was the only one not holding a stone. When they heard it, they began to go out. They left one by one, beginning with the older ones. They left the court of Gentiles. They walked out the triple gate. They walked down the southern steps, being passed by their fellow Jews, holding their own sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And they walked away from the epicenter of God's activity on this earth. And they left in a specific order, John lets us know. The oldest ones, they left first. The ones who had made the most trips into the temple for the forgiveness of their sins, they left first. And they left Jesus there, it says. And he, Jesus, was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, is Jesus, the adulterous woman, and she was sitting with the Son of God in God's temple, and she had no idea. Straightening up, I love the fact that he has been on his knees this entire time. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Maybe he's even smiling. Where'd they go? What's going on? What happened here? Where'd everybody go? Did no one condemn you? Now, he wasn't asking, did no one accuse you? Because they had. And he wasn't asking, woman, are you, are you guilty? Because she was. She'd been caught red-handed. See, what Jesus was really asking was, is there no one forcing you to pay for what you have done? And for the first time, she speaks. And she says, no one, Lord. No one. And Jesus says, now, are you ready for what Jesus said? Because some of you came here today specifically to hear what Jesus is about to say. 
In fact, every single one of us at some point in our life and at some time, we have been in a place where we needed to hear what Jesus is about to say and we weren't sure that we were ever going to hear it. And when we finally did, we still weren't sure that we believed it. Because in that moment, Jesus looked into the eyes of a woman who had been caught red-handed, breaking God's law. And he says to her, I do not condemn you either. I won't force you to pay for what you've done. And with this simple but profound proclamation, Jesus announces to this woman, to anyone in earshot, and to every single person that is reading this account that he is greater than Moses, he is greater than the law, he is greater than the temple system, and soon we'll find out that he is replacing the temple system. And I just have to imagine that when this woman heard this, she threw her arms around him and just sobbed tears of joy and, and relief because her life was saved, literally. She was saved from death because of Jesus. And once she kind of collected herself, you know, sort of brushed the hair back and dried her eyes and gathered herself from this incredibly emotional moment, I think Jesus would say to her, okay, you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm all right. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. And from now on, do not sin any longer. You're free to go, but I want you to leave behind your life of sin. You know what this amazing encounter does? You know what Jesus does here? He is exposing us to the heart of God. That is one of the reasons Jesus came to this world, to teach us the truth about God, to expose us to the heart about God. And in this moment, he is showing us that God looks at us with love and compassion and not condemnation. But, and here's the big but, he does expect something from us. God expects us to leave our life of sin. And the God's honest truth is that as Christians, just talking to the Christians in the room right now, as Christians, this is something that we ignore. We become what I'll call like rinse and repeat Christians. We give our heart to the Lord. We say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. And then we just go live in life. Just do whatever we want. Why? Because Jesus loves you and Jesus forgives. Jesus loves you, Jesus forgives, sin, Jesus forgives, sin, Jesus forgives, rinse and repeat. Well, yes, Jesus loves you. And scripture says that Jesus is faithful to forgive. But this is not how he's called us to live our lives. This, this is the crux of the story. And, and the big question is, why? I mean, why, why does Jesus want us to leave behind our life of sin? Now, I think the, the quick response, I think if we were to sort of answer this, we go, well, you know, 
So God doesn't punish us. I mean, that's, that's what happens with sin. So the reason Jesus says, don't sin anymore, stop sinning, is so that God doesn't punish you. But remember this, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, Jesus has already taken your punishment for your sins. So there's got to be another reason that Jesus is calling us to leave behind our life of sin. There's got to be another reason that he commands us to sin no more. See, he knows something. Jesus, more than anyone else, knows something about sin. He knows that sin kills things. Scripture says that the wages of sin, what it earns, is death. Sin kills things. And we all know this to be the case. Because every single one of us has seen sin kill something. You've seen sin kill marriages. You've seen sin kill finances. You've seen sin kill families. Sin kills our consciousness. It kills our self-esteem. It kills our bodies. And it rips apart cultures. And the truth of the matter is this, at some point in every single one of our lives, Jesus stepped in and he shined the God's honest truth onto some sin, some issue that we are struggling with. And we shouted back, it's not a sin. It's not a problem. And we get defensive. Or we just plain ignore him. Why? I mean, I can only think that maybe it's because we just don't understand God's heart for us. But what this story shows us is that we might have had God wrong this whole time. Jesus doesn't point out sin in our lives because he hates us. And he doesn't point out sin in our lives because he can't wait to condemn us. He points out sin because he loves us. And just a little while after this encounter today, he would die for us. In one of the most famous lines in all of scripture, written by the author of this particular gospel, John tells us that God so loved the world. We think that God hates this world. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, and that means anybody, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, this is one of the greatest verses we have. We love this verse. I mean, today at the big game, you're going to see some people put John 3, 16 right on their cheek. But we always forget to read the next verse, John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. But in order that, so that the world might be saved from their sins through him. And today Jesus exposes us to the God's honest truth and it's this, God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you in your place, for your sins. And if someone is willing to die for you, they are for you. They want the best for you. And so when Jesus urges us 
when Jesus commands us to leave behind our life of sin, as uncomfortable as it might make you feel, as much as you may want to debate it, as much as you may want to say, Jesus, you're wrong. The reason he does it is because he loves you. And he wants you to avoid the consequences of sin. So, what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it is your first time here at Downtown Harbor Church, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So one of the things that we have learned over the course of the last five weeks is that when Jesus shines the God's honest truth into our lives, it can be uncomfortable. It, it, can, it can be painful. It can make us want to run away. But Jesus says, if you will just pause in the light of his truth, if you will just pause and allow his truth to enter your heart, his truth will set you free. So let me ask you a very difficult question, a very uncomfortable question, an awkward question, but a hugely important one. What's your sin? And I don't mean in some ambiguous, nebulous way. I mean, what is your sin? And you know exactly the one that I'm talking about. It's the one that God keeps shining his light on and pointing it out. It's the one that is tearing you up inside. It's the one that is impacting your family. Maybe in your situation, maybe it's not such an obvious sin. The reality is that there's no hierarchy of sin. And so whatever's going on, that's not what God wants for your life. So, what is that area in your life that you need to put before the Lord? What is that thing that you need to lay at the altar? What's your sin? Now, leave that sin behind. We don't, we don't need to overcomplicate this one. We just need to look at the words of Jesus. Sin not, sin no more, leave your life of sin. Not because God's going to get you, but because God loves you. And he knows better than anyone else that sin kills things. Let me pray for you. Dear Holy Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today. That we have an opportunity to look at one of the greatest examples of grace and mercy in all of Scripture. Lord, the truth is that every single human being struggles with sin. We all have it. It's all a problem, Lord. And so often, God, it's because of that sin that we run away from you. We hide from you, Lord, but, but you love us. You love us in spite of this sin. You love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to come to this world to specifically die for our sin. And should we say yes to him, we've been forgiven. But it is up to us 
with the power of the Holy Spirit. It is up to us to leave behind a life of sin. So God, I just ask, Lord, if, 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 that you would give us the courage to listen to your truth. Lord, when you've put that spotlight into that problem that we're dealing with, into that issue that we're dealing with, as much as we want to pretend like it's not there and it's not a problem and it's this and it's that, Lord, we know. We know. We know that sin is killing us. And you only want the best for us. Give us the power and the courage to embrace the truth, Lord. That we need to leave behind our life of sin. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for mercy. We ask all this in his name. Amen.